Ladies and gentlemen, it is a great pleasure to welcome you here today. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. It's a huge pleasure for me to welcome Kofi Annan back to the school. I think it's been 10 years, almost exactly, since you were here on this very stage. It's fantastic that he has found time in his busy diary to visit us. As it is orientation week here at the school, let me also welcome all the new students among you who are here, all the returning students, and all the members of the public at large who've come to join us in this huge event. I should also apologize to all those who were unable to get a ticket for this event and hopefully are listening to the podcast. We could have filled this venue many times over because of the huge interest in the work of Kofi Annan in the issues we'll discuss today, but also the appreciation for the leadership he has shown. This is one of the first of many great public events planned for the term ahead, and I hope you've all had a chance to look at the program. We have a range of distinguished speakers. I'm going to cut short giving you an advertisement for this because we're starting a little late, but please do recognize that this is only the first of important events. The format of this afternoon's event will be a conversation between Kofi Annan and William Shawcross. Kofi Annan, as I'm sure you are already aware, was the seventh Secretary General of the United Nations, serving two terms between 1997 and 2006. In 2001, he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize for his own work and that of the United Nations. Until a few weeks ago, he was the Joint Special Envoy of the Arab League and the United Nations to Syria. And I'm sure that that topic is likely to come up in the next hour. William Shawcross is a widely renowned writer and broadcaster and the author of numerous acclaimed books. Their conversation will last about 20 to 25 minutes, and then we will have time for questions and answers from the audience. Please watch for the uh, stewards in the wet red shirts who will bring microphones to you, introduce yourself, and limit yourself to asking a question rather than making a speech. <laughs> for Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE Anan. After the event, Kofi Annan will be signing copies of his memoir, Interventions, A Life in War and Peace in the Dress Circle Bar area. Copies of the book are on sale, as I'm sure you will have seen. And let me ask you to allow Kofi Annan to make his way to the book signing by remaining in your seats as he leaves the room before you use the side exits to leave yourself. With no more introduction, please join me in giving a warm LSE welcome to Kofi Annan and William Shawcross. Well, it's a great privilege and a joy for me to be here with Kofi Annan, whom I've known for a number of years and admired for all of them. And uh, I, I want to be brief. I think I should keep my questions as short as possible because there are lots of people here who will have better questions than mine, I'm sure. First of all, Kofi, um, this is a beautifully written book um, full of extraordinary stories and uh, anecdotes of with your times and your crises with great leaders and less great leaders. And it's also a remarkably short book for all that you've done. And I think that's, that's a very great tribute to you that you kept it all so short. But why did you write this book? And why did you, and were you, were you determined to keep it short? 
Let me start with the last part of the question, and William, it's wonderful to be on this stage with you. I, I was determined to keep it short. I don't like reading long books, and I don't think I should inflict one on, on others. And um, I thought it was important for someone who has been lucky enough to be engaged in many of the great events of the last two decades that I should share my experience and put things down as to how we dealt with some of the major issues from Rwanda to uh, Bosnia to Iraq, uh, recently to some extent Syria, and also the role of the UN, where, which is not limited to conflict resolution. We have been able to intervene in humanitarian areas. We've intervened on economic issues. Uh, we have uh, done work on terrorism. And in fact, some of you may remember the high-level panel on threats, challenges, and change, which I put together. And they came up with six clusters of threats that should concern us all. This include the environmental issues, internationally organized crime, wars between nations and within nations. Really, and throughout the book, you will see that we have intervened in all these areas. So I'm using intervention in quite a broad sense, not limited to a military sense. So I wanted the public to know what the UN does, what we do well, what we don't do well, where the challenges are, and what needs to be done to strengthen the organization. We are by no means a perfect organization, and it can be improved. And the people who work in the UN are not saints or superhuman beings. They are like you and me. And I hope that also comes through the book. And I've, I'll be pleased if at the end of it, some of the young people here will decide to make a career in international uh, politics and diplomacy. Because we, we need you in this interdependent world. When you look around you and see what's happening in the world. You, you, you talk in your book about how you decided to make that career for yourself. Can you explain a little to the audience how, how it happened for you, starting at school in Ghana, then going yeah. to America? Yeah. No, I, I got a, a grant from a Ford Foundation. They had a program soon after independence. This was uh, 1959. Many of you were not born, but <laughs> this was 1959. I, I was vice president of the National Union of Ghanaian Students, and I was invited to a conference in Freetown, Sierra Leone. I did not know there was a scout there looking for young people to go and study in America. Ford Foundation had a program called the Foreign Student Leadership Program, where they were looking out for young people, men and women, coming from the newly emerging independent countries and uh, looking for people with leadership potential to uh, study in the U.S. and then go back home uh, to help. So I got one of those scholarships, and I ended up at McAllister College in Minnesota, the coldest place <laughs> I have ever been. And I, 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 You've never seen snow before. Absolutely. <laughs> I've never seen snow. I mean, you see it in films, and you think psychologically you understand it. And I, I, I refused to wear earmuffs because I thought they were inelegant. <laughs> well, no one could ever accuse you of that. <laughs> and one day I tried to go and get something to eat on a Sunday morning. 
I almost lost my ears. So I went and bought the biggest pair of earmuffs I could find the next day. But it taught me a lesson. Don't walk into a situation and believe you know better than the natives. Listen to them and do what they do. <laughs> And um, so how did and you get... then from there, after Minnesota, I went to do postgraduate work at the University of... Uh, at the Graduate Institute of International Studies. And it was that there... Was where? In Geneva. In Geneva. It was there that I joined World Health Organization as a, a budget officer, budget officer trainee. Uh, I, I joined them, and I thought I would do it for a couple of years and then move on. One thing led to the other. I stayed with them for... It was a couple of years, three years, wanted to go to Africa. And uh, I did not get the transfer I wanted from the WHO to go to either Congo, Brazzaville, or to Alexandria in Egypt. So I, I resigned and ended up in Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, working for the Economic Commission for Africa, where I stayed for six years. And then uh, one thing led to the other. I moved on to New York and to Geneva. Went back home for a brief period of two years and then back to the UN and decided my life was going to be with the organization and that I could serve my country by serving the international organization well and uh, not necessarily had to be in Ghana, which I had tried and found it difficult and left. So the scout who met you or spotted you in Sierra Leone in 1956 (laughs) looking for future leaders did very well, didn't he? Well, it seems like it. You've, you say in the beginning of your book we, that we stand now at the crossroads of a global realignment as momentous as the one faced by the UN's founders in 1945. What do you mean by that? No, by that I mean that we live in, in, in a really uh, changing world. We've seen the shifts from uh, west to east in economic terms. We've seen the emergence of new uh, countries from India to Brazil to (coughs) South Africa, Indonesia, and others. We have a a system of international governance which has a very narrow uh, power base based on the five uh, permanent members. And this structure has been questioned for a long time. And I think change is due. And, And those with the privileges today will have to think seriously and ask themselves what power should we release, should we hand over to the new and emerging ones to get them to cooperate, to make cooperation really meaningful rather than staying on a path that leads to destructive competition. So either real collaboration or destructive competition. We are also looking at what is happening in the Middle East, the whole realignment taking place in the Middle East, the proxy wars going on even in Syria, and uh, the tensions between communities and, 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 and religions which we need to uh, uh, tackle. And we, I believe we need to try and come up with the mechanisms and the norms that will allow us manage this emerging uh, world that is coming up. But you're not talking only about this happening in the framework of the United Nations, no. but more generally? More, 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 more generally. And in fact, if you, when you look at the relationship between citizen and, and state, the, the, the current discussion of responsibility of government 
and what sovereignty means today with the emerging norm of responsibility to protect, which in effect is telling governments that you cannot hide behind your sovereignty and brutalize your people or allow them to be brutalized. But it also puts responsibility on those of us outside that country in question. In effect, responsibility to protect is telling us that some crimes are so shameful that you cannot stand back and ignore it. It is telling us we have no excuse either because we used to say this is an internal affair of country A and we don't want to intervene. Once you accept that if the government fails, the international community through the Security Council has to react, you have no excuse. But there are always excuses, aren't there? there is a, there's, it's all political in the end, isn't it? I mean, we intervened in Libya because the Russians and Chinese agreed to. And they, we're not intervening in Syria or exercising that responsibility to protect there because there is no such agreement on the council. Yeah, no, I, I, I think yeah, you raise an important question on Libya and Syria, and the two are linked. As someone who's had the chance to talk to the Russians, including going to Moscow to talk to President Putin in July, the Russians believe that um, they made a gesture in the case of Libya. They did not vote for the resolution, but they, they did not uh, vote against it. They intervened and allowed it to go forward in the expectation that it was to protect the people. But they now argue that that resolution morphed into regime change so quickly that they feel duped, both they and the Chinese, and they are not going to repeat that mistake in um, Syria. The problem with Syria is, uh, yes, there are divisions between the big powers. Divisions are not unusual in, in any human endeavor. They are always there. The challenge is to find the leadership to bridge the differences and move forward. But they've got into name-calling and pointing fingers. That is not leadership. They have to bridge the differences. I invited them to Geneva. The, permanent, the foreign ministers of the five permanent members were there. Mrs. Clinton, Sergei Lavrov, all of them were there. And we agreed in Geneva that the solution for Syria is political transition and political settlement. The Geneva communique, which I invite my young friends to look at, uh, says um, it's called the frame, uh, Guidelines and Framework for Political Transition. It, insists, it indicates that there has to be a transitional government <coughs> with full executive power, which means for the first time, all five of them agreed that change is coming to Syria. Assad must go. If you have a government for full executive powers, that the uh, security forces, the army and the police must be given top leadership for them to ensure security and protect even the chemical weapons we are worried about. And a bit more importantly, also insisted that each community must be protected. Syria is a mosaic. We talk of Alawites and Sunnis, but you have the Christians, you have the Druze, you have the Kurds, you have the Alaw, you have the Turkmen, you know, and you have the Assyrians, and they all must have their place in them. Today, we don't hear about these other groups. This is a movement that started as a grassroots demand of people for democracy 
but now we are faced with military confrontation and we don't hear those voices. Those peaceful voices have been squeezed out and as we move forward we need to find a way of restoring their influence and I think eventually obviously the Syrian people will have to de de decide through a ballot what their future dispensation goes but that can only happen if the council gets together they are able to put pressure on the governments in the region to work with them and get these parties to pull back. Those who believe that there is a military solution and you can get one side to win and resolve the issue in Syria are deluding themselves. But Assad clearly still believes that's his best solution. But I, I, I think that is also a delusion. It's not going to work and I think the only way uh, yeah, we can see this stability in the region is working on the political settlement along the lines that uh, we, we, we've looked at. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure there will be other people who want to ask you about Syria, and I, I don't want to talk just about the unbelievable difficulties of conflict. When, um, what do you think, from your term, is the most important um, areas of development that you concentrated on and that you're still concentrating on? Is it perhaps the development of agriculture in Africa? Is that one of the things that yeah. you are most anxious in the Millennium Development Goals to achieve, yeah. to improve? No, I think um, uh, the economic issues are very important. We have tended in the past to focus on, on political issues and conflict, but conflict sometimes has economic basis. The deprivation, poverty, lack of uh, resources can lead to conflict. And I think if we are going to achieve the Millennium Development Goals, and reduce hunger by 50%, ensure that people are healthy and all that. It has to start with ability to feed yourself. And I think Africa has an opportunity to improve its agriculture. And that's why I threw myself into this program of the Green Revolution for Africa, where we are working with small-scale farmers. Because it is these farmers, mainly women, who put food on the table, who are the producers. In the past, they have uh, toiled alone without support from the government, no access to financing and uh, in, uh, other essential inputs. Now things are improving. We are working with scientists to provide them with the right variety of seeds. And in the process, hopefully, uh, improve the lot of the farmers, but also create, hopefully, millions of jobs for the young people who are in the countryside now unemployed and sometimes rushing to the city to settle in, in slums. And so the agricultural aspect is very important. And it's not only important for Africa. We have to understand that 60% of the cultivable land, which is uh, fallow, is in Africa. And so we can become part of the global food security system. And we've seen tensions around food in all regions of the world when the prices spike up. Well, I think what you write about your own involvement in African agriculture today is very interesting. And you're also, I think for an for international official, you are remarkably candid and um, uh, honest about the failures of African leadership. And you've said, you say time and time again that it's ludicrous to blame colonialism for the problems of Africa That's today. Good. It's African leaders' problems. 
Oh, absolutely. I think uh, we need to take responsibility. We need to be responsible for our own uh, destiny. And I'm encouraged by the young people, the new generation of leaders coming up who accept this response, who are in a hurry to make a difference, who are sometimes frustrated by the old style leadership that we find in, in some countries. And so I'm putting a lot of stock on the new generation of leaders. Not all of them will succeed. Some will let us down. I've seen some young ones uh, who amaze me as to uh, the way they, they, they think. But uh, if you were to replace uh, somebody like uh, Robert Mugabe with a 40-year-old, there is no way he can even begin to think or imagine that he can function the way he has functioned. The, the change uh, will come. Uh, African governments are doing a bit uh, better. They are improving governance. Economic uh, management is better. Uh, we have civil societies, robust civil societies emerging that are putting pressure on the governments. And I have lots of uh, admiration for these civil society uh, groups. And, and their role is extremely important because I've said time and time again, where leaders fail to lead, the people can make them follow. And, and, I, and, I, and I think we're going to see a lot of that uh, on the continent. Good. Well, I think I should um, not hog you for the rest of this short hour because I know you have to be away for another um, appointment quite soon. So can I throw it open to the floor? Yes, there's a hand up there. I think you need to wait for a mic, don't you? <coughs> if you could keep your questions short and make them real questions rather yeah. than, as, as Craig said, um, discourses. Thank you. Phil Mulligan, I'm the Executive Director of the United Nations Association for the UK, and uh, I'd like to pick up on your last point there, really. We've seen that many parts of the UN have failed to be able to address security challenges. What role do you think civil society and civil society organisations like UN associations can play in helping with some of these security challenges? I think uh, UN associations have, have a role to play. What I would want to see you do is to get the public and the government, the governments know the difference, but it's sometimes blurred, get them to understand what the UN really is, that the UN is not it, it's not they, it's us. And to get some of the UN issues higher up the political agenda so that the politicians will pick it up level with the people to understand that peacekeeping operation is not a risk-free uh, operation. That when you get in and one or two soldiers are killed, everybody leaves. In fact, you play into the hands of the protagonists or the rascals on the ground. We should get them to understand that we are in the same boat. We may be more comfortable than others. In fact, instead of a boat, let me say a cruise. We are on a cruise ship. I may be in the best uh, suite in the ship and somebody else may be in a dingy room somewhere. But if there's a hole at one end of the boat, we are all at risk. And we need to really try and do something about it. My appeal to you is to get the UN issue up, the, uh, the issues we are concerned about, some of the common threats that I, I listed earlier, higher up the political agenda. And for 
the public to understand the UN is not it, it's not there. When we look at it in those terms, we take the political leaders off the hook. At the, at the back then, the red, red, with the red, waving the red coat. That's very clever. The Americans yeah, wear good. red tie. You come with a coat. <laughs> <laughs> I came specially prepared. In 1961, Eisenhower warned the world of the dangers and the threat of the military-industrial complex. And my question is, what can we do to protect the economies of the world and the democracies of the world in the face of such vested interests that it's so easy for them to provoke uh, sensitive areas like the Middle East with bombs going off, planted bombs, they can easily um, just line their own feather of their own nests. Do you get it? Um, I think the question is that the, 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 the military-industrial complex, by which I think he means the American military-industrial complex, can provoke uh, unrest in places like yeah. the Middle East for yeah. their own profit. Yeah. I no, I think uh, uh, the military-industrial complex, as you said, it was quite strong in the 1960s. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if we can today look at the military-industrial complex in the same sense. But the import of your question is, is, is right in the sense that we need to be careful that some governments don't take it upon themselves, the responsibility of intervening and in, in, uh, acting around the world that can lead to further tensions. This has been one of my messages at the UN that we need to have a rules of the game that determines when force can be used and not make it uh, the law of, of the jungle. Uh, it was one of those reasons where I, why I argued in the case of Iraq and others that if a government and a country is attacked, they have the right, it has the right to defend itself or even take preemptive action. But where it is a bro in a, where it's a question of broader threat to all of us, you cannot act without the le legitimacy of the Security Council. And uh, uh, it, it, we need to accept some of these rules and restraints. And it should not be a question of convenience whether we accept them or not. But, so the rule of law is quite crucial. But, but you say in your book that, um, you, we, the UN, that the world acted in Kosovo without Security Council That's clearance, it. and you approved of that. And you've also said before now that um, if there had been a coalition of the willing to act in Rwanda when the Security Council would not stop the genocide, you would have approved it. Yes, which is the right way to apply a law. You have to know the circumstances under which exceptions are justified and argue for the exception. Any clerk can apply the rule, but to make the exception often demands leadership. So it doesn't always have to be Security Council approval? Well, there may be circumstances where the Security Council may fail to ask in yeah. Kosovo. I said there are times when you need to put force at the service of peace. And there, let's be clear, we have seen what Milosevic had done in Bosnia in the whole Yugoslav uh, collapse. And we were not it would have been unconscionable for us to sit and allow him to do the same in Kosovo and you know, wring our hands and say we didn't know what to do. Uh, yes. Adam Roberts, British Academy. 
just following on from that, uh, could you give us some sense of what you took from your terrible personal experiences in relation to first uh, uh, Rwanda and, and, and Srebrenica? Uh, you did, when you were Secretary General, allow publication of very frank reports, particularly so in the case of the report on Srebrenica, which went into forensic detail onto what had gone wrong. But what had you personally taken away from yeah. those two terrible crises? Adam, it's good to see you again, and thanks for asking uh, that question. Um, he's one of our foremost uh, legal, uh, intellectual minds on this issue. But let me say that uh, I was really uh, touched and shaken by the two experiences. Uh, Rwanda coming soon after Somalia. Uh, and and let, we have to put things in context. In Somalia, where the senior President Bush sent in thousands of troops to help with a humanitarian situation, followed by a UN peacekeeping operation. And a US helicopter was shot down, soldiers dragged through the streets, and the US decided to pull out from Somalia and in fact retreat from peacekeeping. And all the other governments, particularly those with well-equipped and well-trained troops, all pulled back. It was at this time that the Rwandan crisis was also evolving and developing. And um, we had a very little uh, weak force of about 600 people in the whole country to monitor a ceasefire agreement. And then the question of uh, the genocide began with a, a suggestion that there is an arms cache of 135 that the peacekeepers should go and seize. And of course, if you are in my shoes, you are very conscious of what happened in, in Somalia, where an attempt to arrest a, wall, a warlord collapsed the whole operation and concerned that the same thing would happen in a situation where they did not have the capacity, they did not have the mandate, and they were going to take risks which can overwhelm the whole nation. So we said, don't do it. And sure enough, uh, the, the killings continued. And in fact, no one would have thought that this was a whole national campaign. When you are told there are 135 weapons, you may think it's almost a localizing, but became a national. And at that time, the council members and the member states had no stomach for going to Rwanda or putting in troops. We withdrew the troops. And what we were afraid of also happened. When 10 Belgian soldiers were killed, the Belgian battalion was withdrawn a bit like Somalia. Uh, and, and, and at that time, I remember saying, if uh, genocide cannot make us move, what can? And it was a very painful thing. And after the war, I went to Rwanda with my wife, Nan, who's sitting right behind you, uh, discussing this issue with the Rwandese. And uh, uh, what was fascinating was, as an African, I was really moved and touched by this as a human being, as an African, and I recall asking the question, what is it in our African society that makes us turn on each other from time to time? This is a cancer from within that we need to deal with. I don't think many 
uh, Rwandans, forgive me for that phrase, cancer from within, at that time, asking we should also look at ourselves. Because the uh, reaction was, we had this problem, we had the massacre because the foreigners wouldn't come. And I wasn't sure, and even today I'm not sure, that uh, if we were to be confronted with something similar in other countries, the international organization, international community can organize itself to be there. So my question of how we deal from the cancer, we deal with the cancer from within is still valid in that situation and in other situations. And the same with Rwanda, with, with Bosnia and Srebrenica in particular, where the, we established a safe area which turned out not to be safe at all for 8,000 men to be marched and, and, and killed. And it, it, it weighed on me, and it often does when you see pictures. In fact, there's a picture of this. William was with me on one of the visits uh, in, in Srebrenica, where, uh, in, in Bosnia, where we went to talk to the, uh, to the leaders. It is Rwanda, Yugoslavia, and to some extent Somalia, which pushed me to try and promote this norm of responsibility to protect. But we should have some uh, uh, basic principles that will guide us, basic standards. And that, in a way, is part of the origin of the responsibility to protect. I first challenged the Security Council in, a, in, a, in my speech in 1999. But I knew at that time they were not ready. It wasn't ripe to push it. And luckily the Canadians took it forward and did a report on responsibility to protect. They turned out to have a much more diplomatic, much better diplomatic term than mine because we were using humanitarian intervention which really uh, unsettled quite a few governments. But with responsibility to protect, they went along. And it's not going to be easy to apply this norm as the exchanges we've had here has indicated. As you see in Syria. Yeah. Now, someone right at the back holding up a paper. <laughs> or whatever it is they're holding up. The book. She's the holding book. up the book. That's your very, book. Is it your book? That's very, no, that's that's very, that's very clever. Keep promoting it. Yes, everybody. <laughs> Hi, my name is Judy O'Dare, I'm lawyer, International Center for the Legal Protection of Human Rights. Um, I met you several years ago when I was a student at the Royal Wallenberg Institute in Lund. Uh, my question is, um, how can the UN and your foundation work with African governments to improve um, the concretization of their international human rights obligations, particularly in respect of economic, social, and cultural rights. Thank you. I think the, the UN and its Human Rights Council have uh, limited resources. I would encourage the African civil society movements, working with universities and other NGOs around the world, to take forward that work. Uh, my foundation is rather small and has a limited capacity to focus on mainly on political mediation, some of the development and governance issues. I speak and promote human rights, but for the kind of work you're doing, I would suggest a link-up of African NGOs with other international NGOs and universities to take the matter forward. The Council on Human Rights may be able to guide 
and help you. So you should contact them as well. Somebody up? But it's good to see you again since Lund. <laughs> right at the back, at the top. Oh, yeah. Can't see very well. Yeah, I think she's seen them. Thank you. My name is Mary Minnis. I work at ActionAid UK and I'm a former UNESCO employee. I had a slightly um, not related question to intervention. More about the success and the failure of the UN uh, political branch and its agencies mm -hmm. and the lack of cohesion inside the agencies and the political branch as well as the lack of cohesion between those um, entities and NGOs on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you could comment on how much you attribute success or failure to the inadequacies of some of these agencies, the crippling bureaucracy that goes on inside, um, the lack of efficacy from some of the state's parties, and the continual um, rhetoric which seems to go nowhere and how that can limit what we do on the ground. No, you've, you've, you've hit on a, 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 a real problem, a problem I recognised and also tried uh, to do something about. We have so many agencies, each with their own budget, their own governing councils, and sometimes uncoordinated and resistant coordination. On top of that, we have the, the NGO community, which, which, uh, uh, which does most of the work on the ground in humanitarian health and other areas, who uh, some are very effective, others are not so effective, and they also would want to be independent and are not always easily coordinated. At best, one would want to see a situation where the UN and the NGOs work very, very closely uh, uh, together and co in a cohesive uh, manner. And I've seen it in, in, in some uh, situations. I think on the, the challenges of HIV-AIDS, for example, the UN agencies, the UN aids and the NGOs worked well. Uh, what I tried to do was to encourage all the UN agencies to come together at the country level and work as a team. In fact, insisting that they should share offices in a particular country where feasible, have a UN house where they all work from the same premise, whether they are with UNDP, UNICEF, FAO, and, and share their common problems. And that they should also go in there acknowledging that they are there to help the government. It is a government's program which they have agreed with that they are going to help implement, but not to go and fight with this is UNICEF's mandate, this is FAO's mandate, and they compete and fight with each other, uh, leading to the comment that you have uh, made. So that effort continues. On the NGOs, I've uh, advised them in the past that they should have their own uh, coordinating body and also set up standards which they would also try and apply and discourage some NGOs which uh, so sometimes behave in a manner that gives the community a, a bad name. But we have lots of work to do in um, working together and it works in some countries and I think it depends often on leadership where you have a strong UN country representative who understands the needs and the support and the contribution the NGOs make. 
they do work well together. And I must say, as Secretary General, I appreciated the work of the NGOs and said often that um, the NGOs are often ahead of us. They say and do things that we cannot say or do, and we catch up with them. They are the fire throwers, and, and we, we, they open doors for us. And that effective cooperation between the UN and the NGOs uh, is something I found invaluable. And so the, the weaknesses you found is something that we need to keep working on to eliminate. Over there. Mr. Anand, a consumer diplomat, diplomat like yourself. May I ask you to speak of, a bit louder? As a consumer diplomat, as a man of peace with this lovely delivery that you've got, now you resigned as a peace envoy to Syria, and that surely is a signal to all the warring parties that there is no diplomatic solution to that situation. There is only you know, force, because if a man of peace withdraws, all the warring parties have a field day to play. Do you think that was the right move, and do you think it's ever good or useful to resign? Mm -hmm. Slightly linked to this one, if I may, is the issue of the organization you led for so long. Mm -hmm. How big a crisis do we need for the UN to reform, or is the UN on its way out to be supplanted by coalitions of the willing? Mm -hmm. let, let, let me start with your uh, first question. Um, the resignation, my resignation, I hope, will be seen also as an act in favor of the Syrian people. A resignation which I hope was a wake-up call for all the governments playing games, all the governments which couldn't come together, all the governments which have, who have not shown the leadership required to bridge the differences and to, go, uh, and to move forward. We can sit in New York and point fingers. We can sit in the Middle East and quarrel with each other. But in the end, it's the Syrian people who are suffering. They should be our one and only concern. How do we help the Syrian people? How do we find a way of ending the conflict? Do we help by intervening, by sending in more arms, does it make the situation better or does it make it worse? You know my view. I've stated it here very clearly. And those who gave me the job in New York asked me to help seek a peaceful solution. But I did not get the support that I, I required. And I hope Brahimi, who is taking over from me and is uh, handling the situation, will get the support. There are those who argue that any peace effort, any mediation is giving Assad more time to kill his citizens, implying that there is no room for mediation. You shouldn't even try. The people shouldn't even be given the hope that one is trying to find a peaceful solution. I don't know how one comes to the conclusion that any effort at mediation makes a problem Worse. I, I, regardless of the process of thought, how one comes to that uh, conclusion. There's been lots of misinformation in this uh, war. Honestly, I'm not going to attack the press, but I think 
they could have done a better job. There's been lots of cheerleading, but very little serious analysis. There are some who have done a good job. We need to look at this issue in a coldly realistic terms. Uh, otherwise, uh, we can get into a real mess in the Middle East that no one would know how to extract ourselves out of it. So my uh, uh, resignation, and I, I explained why I was resigning and why the government's concerns should play their role. And I hope the pressure will be put on them. First and foremost, those responsible are the protagonists and those fighting on the ground. And we need to really find a way of pressuring them to pull back. As I said, on the day of my resignation as a mediator, I can't want peace more than the Syrian people or the protagonists or the Security Council. And that, I hope that wake-up call uh, was heard. On the issue of the UN itself, which uh, you raised, uh, I, I think uh, the UN, as I, I conceded right from the beginning, is not a perfect organization, and we have to uh, reform it. We have to, uh, it has to adapt. The world has changed, and the UN has to change. If you were to set aside the UN, as you imply, and try to create another one, I'm not sure you will succeed in creating a new UN. What you have to do is we should all work to improve and strengthen what we have rather than start from scratch. Yes. You can clap if you want to. I'm a student at the University of Nottingham. It's a more general question, but you spoke about your involvement um, with African agriculture. How do you feel about the enormous um, amounts of Chinese foreign investment going into Africa to supply the Chinese with their own food? How, how do you feel about that? I think the, the Chinese investments and Chinese efforts in Africa is generally seen as positive. Uh, they are doing lots of infrastructure work, which the Africans need. Uh, we need to open up the continent to be able to trade amongst ourselves and also to export. What is important is that the arrangements and the trading between the Africans and the Chinese be mutually beneficial. I've said this to the African governments and to the Chinese authorities, and that if they sign agreements which are not fair, it will not stand the test of time. Young, bright men and women will take office in future and set those agreements aside. But for the moment, it has been positive to Africa. It has uh, increased the amount of foreign investments going in. They have options. There is competition. And, and, and that is healthy. But they need to also bear in mind the interests of the country's concern. We've had situations where there was a strike in Algeria, for example, where they had a contract to do a road or some structure but brought in Chinese laborers when there was loss of unemployment in Algeria and the people got very upset. These are teething problems that I hope they will sort out. You don't think that the Chinese exploitation of Africa is dangerous for some African societies at least? Uh, I, I use that word. No, I but put it in quotes, yeah, I suppose. Exploitation. No, I think the, uh, uh, if the Africans by now 
having been exploited for so long, have not learned to protect themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and are not, learned Very good to, yeah, not learning to protect themselves, then we are in serious trouble. But I think we are beginning to do better. We're coming to the end, I'm afraid, and the hundreds of questions, as I knew there would be, this guy in a white shirt, is it? Thank you very much. Uh, John Hume. Uh, my question's on the uh, Security Council, because for nearly 70 years you've had five permanent members. Um, I just wonder for how much longer will it be possible to keep like that. Uh, I realise that it's difficult enough to get five people to agree, but clear, quite clearly there are some pretty good claims for permanent membership. Could you comment, please? Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. I think the, the, the five permanent members will be with us as long as the UN exists. Because uh, in drawing up the charter and the agreement, they looked after their interests very well. You cannot take away the visa, the, the veto, without the agreement. And I don't see uh, these countries, or at least all of them, agreeing to give up the veto. So my approach when I was a Secretary General was to create additional permanent seats, but without veto. You know, Latin America, for example, the whole region doesn't have a single permanent seat. Africa, with 53 countries, doesn't have a single seat. India, with one, almost one-fifth of the world, is not there. And so at least let's begin by reforming the Security Council to make it more democratic and more representative. And if we did that, it would even gain in greater legitimacy, even if you haven't withdrawn the veto. It is one thing to have countries like Brazil, India, South Africa or Nigeria sitting in that council room debating with the US, France and Russia and UK than to have Togo, Rwanda and uh, maybe Colombia uh, sitting arguing and, and uh, uh, thinking they have the same weight. I mean, there should be uh, room for representation for smaller countries, but there has to be some, some balance. Because sometimes, honestly speaking, the smaller countries get bullied in the Security Council. I think... Well, alas, I'm afraid we have to end it there because Kofi Annan has an incredibly busy schedule. I think you've seen in this brief discussion what an extraordinary man he is and what an extraordinary uh, leader of the United Nations he, he was and his book demonstrates those things again. Uh, it's a very honest book. It's full of frankness about the things he was not able to do and the, the United Nations could not do but it also shows what the United Nations can do and what a great leader can do. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, William.